And welcome back to 90s Noise. This is Ashley, born 1988. I'm April, born 1991. We are here today with a very, very special guest, our very first interview with a writer, producer, director, and published author. New book out in stores everywhere, online. It's called My Life and Toys. He has done works on movies and shows such as Snow Dogs, The Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, uh, Beethoven, Problem Child 2, Jingle All the Way, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy, The New Leave It to Beaver, Bad News Bears. So, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's just amazing. And we are so honored to be talking with him today. It is Mr. Brian Levant. I hope you enjoy the interview. All right. We are back with 90s Noise, and we have a very, very special guest here with us, Brian Levant, who is a director, writer, producer. You are just a triple threat, honestly. <laughs> um, we we absolutely love it. And thank you so much for joining us today. We are very, very excited to have you on and get to discuss some of your career and also what you're doing now. You've got a book out, which yes. is incredible, um, very insightful, very, very insightful. But if you don't mind, we'll just kind of start with um, some of the work that you've done that's really inspired us and been a big part of our lives. And then we want to jump in to talk to you um, about your book and everything too. What great, let's go, guys. All right. So one of the biggest movies that you've done for us personally mm -hmm. was Beethoven. <laughs> and we absolutely love animals. As when your dogs came in, you could see we were just overjoyed with that. Uh what was what's the experience like working on a set with animals? You did Beethoven, you did snow dogs, and being able to direct animals, like how 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 different is that from directing people and kids? Oh, much easier. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you know, it, it's, I'm sure we'll wander in and out during the course of, uh, of this. I, I I have in my house about 700 pounds in Newfoundland, uh, <laughs> and uh, and but we did we didn't have such big dogs when I did Beethoven. I do so many animal films because I think I get along with them better than most. And I have been able to somehow, somehow get animals to do exactly what I want. For instance, there's a scene at the beginning uh, of Beethoven where the puppy is in the window before Stanley Tucci and Oliver Platt steal him and take him to the vivisectionist. Oh, just terrible things. Uh, and, and I wanted him to be playful and, and 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 really show some puppy spirit and uh, and I just started making faces at him and tapping on the window with my keys and I got him all worked up and he rolled around in circles and then all of a sudden he just stopped and laid down and went to sleep and <laughs> and how could you ask for anything more perfect than that than that moment uh, today you would have CGI'd it uh, and, and you know there is there is some uh, some animatronic work in Beethoven, meaning, you know, a dummy head with, with, with eyeballs and lots of servo motors to make his mouth move and his eyes widen and narrow and, and uh, try and get a fierce look. Uh, 
limited, but effective in, a, in very tight close-ups. Uh, and also we had surprisingly a man in a dog suit. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Oh, you couldn't see the arms and stuff. But if you ever look at the shot in Beethoven, where in the foreground, the nurse loads the needle, mm -hmm. the, the hypodermic needle, and in the background, out of focus, Beethoven just goes, and, and faints. Oh. So if you watch it, he's out of focus. So you really wouldn't see the man in the dog suit. Yeah. And the arms are below the bottom of the camera. Uh, and in a little bit, we used the, the man in the suit and rescuing the little girl when she fell into the pool as well. But but the, the real, you know, yes, she climbed on the back of the guy in the suit, but but <laughs> it was the real dog that dragged her to, to the shallow end. Uh, wow. And, you know, I, I, Beethoven was a very strange experience to me because I was thrown into it with zero prep. I was finishing my first film, Problem Child 2, for the studio, and they had a very good cause to uh, relieve the director of Beethoven of his responsibilities. Mm. Oh, man. And, uh, and so I was probably, number one, the cheapest option uh, they had. Uh, number two, there was a, a, uh, some dog work in Problem Child 2, which went... Mm -hmm. Very, very simple, very, very wonderful trainers, worked with them many times over the years. And uh, so so they got me a meeting and I first had to meet with the late Ivan Reitman, who was a tremendous help with an incredible organization. Uh, and, and, and that was very helpful. And then with Charles Grodin, who's who, a very persnickety man. <laughs> uh, I think it's well known. If you watch his performances, you get the feeling. Yeah. Right. And my wife is very smart. She went out and bought his biography, his autobiography. It would be so nice if you weren't here about his acting career and everything he said he liked. I told him that's what I like and everything he hated. I told him that's what I hated. <laughs> and I won his approval and later his trust. And they had put together an amazing cast, as I mentioned, Stanley Tucci, Oliver Platt, the great Dean Jones from all the Disney movies that I grew up watching. Uh, uh, Bonnie Hunt in her first piece, and, and and those kids, you know, two of them went on to very long, successful uh, careers. And uh, as a matter of fact, Joseph Gordon-Levitt yep. had a small part in that film as well, who who I knew uh, he lived across the street from my old writing partner, and our kid, and he and my daughter actually started swimming lessons together at six weeks. So it was nice to see him again, <laughs> and nice to see him now because uh, uh, he's terrific. And so. I read the script on Wednesday. I started shooting on Monday. Wow. With a very hostile crew, uh, with a dog trainer who wanted to impress me with all the things he forced the four dogs who played Beethoven to do. Like he, he says to me, watch this. And he has the dog walk backwards across a two by 10 board on the ground. And he goes like this to me. Huh? And I go, I don't want him to do anything like that. I just want him to drink out of the toilet and steal food. <laughs> I want him to you know, piss all over the floor and, and scratch the doors and the walls like my dogs do at home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he took great umbrage to this. And, and we didn't like each other. And, and I actually had to be held back at one point when I caught him putting his thumbs in, in, in the eyes of the dog to make him do something. Oh yeah, no, uh, and you know, you know, he also had this great relationship with the Humane Society, who was supposed to monitor right. those kinds of things on set, and and so they, you know, if anything ever happened to him, you know, they'd slap his wrist, 
you know. And, and he he was a big dog trainer. He did the Babe movies. And when I saw the duck carrying the clock in his mouth, I said, "Oh God, what did he have to do to make him do that?" <laughs> but anyways, the dogs you have to have a very low expectation of what an animal will do in in a shot. And basically, I can get them from place to place, and I can let your experiences, your expectations of what of what the, you want him to do, what they're capable of in your mind to govern <laughs> the, the storytelling. Because they don't know they're in a movie. They don't know <laughs> I'm supposed to jump through this. Uh, uh, you know, I just if I do this, they'll give me food. All right, I'll do it once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I got my rewards, so I'm not interested. I also don't like they don't give them a lot of food, so they're more responsive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I used that once in, in Beethoven. I wanted to have him drink out of the aquarium bowl. And just to make sure, he went up and went right for it. And, you know, we built a special bottom to the bowl. And we got a glass table, you know, and we're shooting up threw it underneath and I wanted to make sure it have. So I said, just, just, you know, it was summer. And, and I said, just, uh, you know, let, let him not have any water for a couple hours and, and we'll get that. And then, then he can have plenty. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Beethoven uh, really changed my career because it was a hit. Mm -hmm. And someone was just saying to me uh, yesterday that, you know, if you don't have a hit with some of your first projects, you're never going to get another one. <laughs> and so Problem Child 2, although it made far less than the original, mm -hmm. uh, nonetheless, was, was profitable and it's continued to be profitable for them. And, and that was an unusual film because Problem Child 1, despite terrible production problems, <laughs> uh, uh, made a lot of money and they had to basically reshoot the whole thing. And, and they were so buoyed by its success, they got a release date before they had a script. So we had to back into a release date, which meant, you know, like six weeks of post or something. And they were looking for a TV director. And I was, uh, I was, I don't even know if anyone ever would have really thought of me as a TV director, because I only was directing on my own show. <laughs> 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 you know, Problem Child led to Beethoven. Beethoven uh, led to the Flintstones. Mm -hmm. uh, Beethoven was uh, changed the video industry. You got, you got video tape. So because in 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 those days, what year was it? <laughs> what year is it? Ninety two, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Ninety two. No movies that did not gross over a hundred million dollars were sell throughs, meaning you could buy them. You had to rent them. It was a much better business. Yeah. So Beethoven was the first uh, uh, film that made $58 million domestically, and but $80 million overseas at a time when there were probably a quarter of the theaters that, that there were today and a quarter of the countries who received the, those films. And so it became the first non-$100 million film to become a sell-through, and it was very successful because as you probably grew up on, you can watch it over and over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, actually, actually uh, someone recently sent me, uh, two, two different people sent me, one, one of their, their like 18-month-old grandchild would watch the moment where the cat uh, snarls at, at the puppy as he's walking through the street again and again and again and again and again. And and someone else just sent me they're they're Newfoundland watching Beethoven and it, you know uh, to digress 
I did the second Max movie, which was much different than the first. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, this, I had never seen Max <laughs> in the theater, so I rented it and, and went upstairs. So we have a bigger screen and, and sat down to watch it. My 18-month-old puppy came up and started watching the movie and started getting very involved, mm-hmm. barking when he's in fights. And but the funniest was, you know, the screen is on one wall and the bathroom is behind that wall. So he kept going <laughs> around <laughs> to see where the hell the people were. Uh, but but I said by the, way, the way I opened the meeting was I said you know you know I told the story about my dog watching the movie and I said and if you but if you film the script you have now I don't think my dog's gonna like it much. <laughs> so we changed the script. Uh, and and you know Snow Dogs was uh, once again a huge undertaking. We had eighty dogs. Uh, that we had wow. owned or rented for for the film, and uh, it required a, a lot of trainers. A lot of uh, we took over the fairground where they have livestock shows and stuff to convert mm-hmm. uh, those for kennels for all those dogs and feeding them. And and you know, and, and the primary ones had doubles, and, <laughs> and certain ones had to be dyed to match non non you know uh, what do we call it kind dye, not not bad dye watercolor kind of stuff uh, still they had to do it on a couple to make them match and uh we shot up on mountaintops uh on frozen lakes <laughs> uh at, at one point we had a horrible horrible snowstorm uh, uh at the end of uh one of our shoots at 20, you know like a 14 15,000 foot altitude and on the packing out of the location, I mean, two of the trucks went off the went uh, fell off the side of the hill. Uh, yeah, no, it, it was it was it was quite a, a manly experience, you know. <laughs> and, the, and the Canadian guys, you know, you know, I'm bundled up like like you know, you know, like the, I, have, I have the entire North Face catalog on head to toe, <laughs> and, and and you know, and the Vancouver grips are, don't aren't even wearing gloves, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but we, so we shot that in Vancouver and up in Canmore in the Canadian Rockies uh, outside Alberta, okay. where they actually had had the Winter Olympics not long uh, ago around that time. And so yeah, the animal work is is, is difficult, uh, but uh, you know, no, 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 no dog has ever said to me. Well, why am I doing this line? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and I feel for them because they're working animals and I prefer animals that sleep on couches. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in abundance right now. (laughs) Uh, If I flip this around, you'd see. I prey on people's affection for their animals and, and, and their love for them in bonding them to characters who don't know they're in a movie. <laughs> well, you did an incredible job on those for sure. Like I know me personally, just a quick little um, story with snow dogs. I had broken my thumb and my brother as a sorry for breaking your thumb little sister here's a movie about dogs that you can watch over and over to get your mind off of it and it was snow dogs and I absolutely loved that and so that was I think I still have that that DVD oh, wow. <laughs> and everything so but I, I love that 
I haven't seen it in years. I, I should watch it again. It's yeah. tough for me to watch my movies. It's the same things that bug me now. Is it buggy? You don't use, oh, with time, oh, you'll forget it. You can just get lost in the movie. No, I still say, oh, look at that stupid extra yeah. who looks at the <laughs> camera, uh, you know. Oh, look, look at, oh, if we only had just held that for another, oh, yeah, <laughs> the, same, the same things that kill you. Uh, that's the trouble with editing. You have to watch them over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Try and cut around them. So can we transition to kind of how you got started in in, in the industry? Yes. Well, you know, it, I, I, I think I'm kind of unusual in that by the time I was four or five, I knew what I wanted to do. Wow. I was a, you know, really born into the birth of children's television. And when you think about you know, Howdy Doody was a killer, <laughs> phenomena, phenomena. They sold in, in, in their, in 1940s and 50s dollars, they sold over $2 billion of licensed merchandise. Today, that's probably about $70 billion. And, and you know, everything from, from Christmas flocking to furniture, clothes, uh, puppets, sponge. There's nothing they wouldn't put the Howdy Doody <laughs> logo on. And, and there were many, many shows, the local stations, there, you know, a lot of them, they weren't national, like, like Howdy Doody, uh, local shows, because what is really cheaper for early TV than, than one guy with, with his hand on the other side of a, of a puppet stage uh, doing, doing, doing a puppet and talking to it, and then r running old, really bad, really cheap cartoons and, and, and Three Stooges stuff and all. And so I really identified with television much more than I think most people did. And I knew I wanted to be in it by, by then. I actually have a, 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 a card my mother saved from my nursery school teacher talking about my incessant yapping about, about going into TV. Wow. Uh, and by the time I was eight, I started submitting jokes to those kind of TV shows. None, none were ever used, by the way. And I started <laughs> doing a lot more writing, you know, for every classroom, paper, temple, camp, uh, new, well, the camp newspaper it really is is uh, because uh, by, I was I started as a cub reporter there when I was like ten before I was even eleven, and worked my way up to editor for two years. But the the guy before me won Pulitzer's is a managing editor of the Atlantic, the Atlantic uh, Journal of Constitution and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the and I had. Did the Wednesday totem pole at Camp Indianola? The Sunday <laughs> editor was NPR's Scott Simon. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I mean, this was really a job for people who were serious about becoming writers, and most of them did. I can go back even a few more uh, generations, but I, I won't bore your your audience. And that continued writing for writing for my high school paper, writing for my community paper. And I started making movies when I was 10. I had a TV show in high school. Uh, uh, we did an interview show and sometimes we did sketches. And I still, by the time I went to college, I still sort of felt I was probably more headed towards journalism. And then I said, so here, here I've been having bylines, all this experience. And they said, well, you can't even write for the college newspaper until you're a senior. So I said, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I just went, got in, in a different line. Uh, <laughs> I was at the University of New Mexico uh, primarily because uh, they took the ACT, which in those days didn't include math. And there was no way I was going to uh, showcase my math uh, 
skills to, to any university. And, and, and to be frank, I had a D average. So I, I wasn't like going to USC or NYU film school. There are probably 20 film schools in the country. Uh, and and uh, that wasn't on my radar. But I cobbled together a tremendous film education at New Mexico, at Arizona, where I you know, took the first production that went two summers at the Art Institute of Chicago and, and their experimental film program with people like Stan Brackage there. And, uh, and, and then I went to CalArts for a while too. And after I graduated, I wrote a spec script for the Bob Newhart show. And, uh, and my then girlfriend, now wife of God knows how many years, uh, 47, oh. I don't know. Uh, we, we boldly moved to LA and, uh, and within a few months, I was actually making a few dollars. And uh, within a year, I was in the Writers Guild, having sold uh, stories to the Jeffersons and another uh, series that uh, Danny Thomas was a huge star in the 50s and early 60s uh, did. And then um, I was taken to Gary Marshall's house to play basketball. And I, I, Happy Days was the number one show. Gary Marshall was a creator, executive producer, and, and he had a game for like 40 years. Uh, at his house on Saturday afternoons where, where producers and writers would uh, trade elbows with electricians and, and uh, pro athletes. And uh, the first time I was there, James Kahn and, uh, and Elliot Gould were playing, and they were literally the number one and number two biggest stars in Hollywood <laughs> at the time. And Elliot Gould was really good. But anyways, I guarded Gary. And I didn't know, realize that he was like seven inches taller than me. <laughs> and he played at Northwestern. I guarded him as tight as I could. I blocked a couple shots. And afterward, he said, so what do you do? And I told him that I was trying to be a, a writer. And he nodded. And he gave me a story meeting with Happy Days. And basically, I was there on and off for the next eight years. And it was an incredible, incredible place to learn your craft from masters and to watch something working at the very peak of its powers and the hold it had over the nation was staggering at the time uh, when you realize that you know happy days had seven spin-offs <laughs> all together and uh and two of them the first two laverne and shirley uh, which premiered 104 days after the first episode in which Cindy Williams, uh, who was Ron Howard's co-star in American Graffiti, and and Penny Marshall, Gary Marshall's younger sister, who'd just uh, been canceled on an MTM, Mary Tyler Moore production show, uh, Paul Sands and Friends and Lovers, and needed a job. Uh, so, so that's, I think, part of the impetus was to get his sister work. But uh, it was a hysterical episode, and 107 days after that episode aired, uh, the show debuted, uh, and it became an instant number one series. And the two shows would uh, would be together for, I think, the next eight years. And then Mork and Mindy, which uh, uh, my first full year on staff, uh, which was the fifth season, <laughs> Gary Marshall walked in one morning, Scotty had an idea. Scotty was his then eight-year-old son. Yeah. Scotty, in 19, this is 1977, Star Wars, right? Summer yeah. of Star Wars, right? So Scotty says, let's put a spaceman on happy days. <laughs> and so, so we literally drew straws to see who would be forced to write this debacle. And uh, Joe Glauberg lost and retired shortly thereafter, <laughs> though a young man. <laughs> and nobody wanted to play this part. Two actors came and went. 
several other people turned it down flat before they ever even saw a script. Uh, and in desperation, uh, an agent said, I got a young comic who does an alien as part of his act. Send him over. That was at 11. By 3.30 that afternoon, we were treated to the most incredible run-through I think I've ever seen. It was uh, uh, the Happy Days cast, unlike most people, had tremendous generosity of spirit towards one another and others. Uh, and basically said, take it, take it away, and gave him free reign to explore what he could do. And then we shaped it, the director, Jerry Paris, uh, shaped it, and, as, did, as did Robin. But, you know, his inventiveness, originality, he killed, he killed. And he knew, and he knew it. He knew he found a vehicle where he could show everything that he could do rather than being pigeonholed, you know, uh, and everybody walked off the stage saying spinoff. And what they did, uh, two Happy Days producers later that year would do a pilot called Sister Terry about a plainclothes nun uh, that was starred Pam Dauber. And so they did on 16 millimeter film. <laughs> this was just rediscovered. The presentation, they did a split screen. What would happen if this down-to-earth Earth girl met with this wacky alien? <laughs> That's all they had. The two of them, had, Pam, Pam Dauber found out the series existed when there was a thing in Variety that it had sold. <laughs> and, and they met uh, when they went to Boulder to shoot the Boulder, Colorado, where the show was set uh, to shoot the main titles. Wow. And so happy days. I left after the middle of the sixth season, uh, Ron Levitt, and I, another young writer, uh, were teamed to, to redo a pilot uh, for the uh, producers of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. And uh, strangely enough, that pilot sold, debuted after the Super Bowl, and, uh, and then went on to that, left Happy Days for that. Big mistake. Uh, <laughs> but that led to producing the Bad News Bears mm. and Mork and Mindy. And I went over there and tried to, uh, tried to bail out a sinking spaceship. And we were successful in getting to syndication, which is what everybody wanted. They mm -hmm. wanted those, those 88, 91 episodes, whatever it was, to make it a viable syndication package. Uh, and that's where the money was in, in those days. Well, yeah, I guess it, nah, there's so few shows in, in syndication today. Uh, it's kind of silly. I mean, how much can you watch Modern Family and Big Bang Theory? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I love them both. But, you know, 10 seasons on, 11 seasons, you know, you rarely see something you've seen 10 times yet, mm -hmm. uh, like Seinfeld. But, uh, you know, there, there aren't many shows coming into the marketplace, uh, uh, which is a shame. There used to be a, a lot more variety and a lot more successes. In 1977, 78 TV season, I believe nine out of the 10 top shows were situation comedies. Uh, today, there isn't one, I think, Young Sheldon's maybe like number 18 or something. Yeah. And uh, that's sad. We've lost, we've lost something. We've lost, especially what we've lost is entertainment where the whole family can watch rather than everybody being in their own room. Mm -hmm. uh, watching you know, Nickelodeon in one Disney Channel and another <laughs> Netflix and one and the Hallmark Channel with Grandma. So we have lost something like that. Anyways, I returned to Happy Days uh, and uh, we did, a, I, I think, a pretty valiant job of keeping the series going in the 10th and 11th seasons. And the finale uh, was, was so heartfelt uh, by everyone involved. 
And, uh, and before that, our 250th episode where Ron Howard returned after having left for greener pastures after the seventh season. And we shot two shows in one week. And it was, uh, it, 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 is, it was a great way to end the run uh, on such high notes is that. And, and to see that the show was still capable of being as exciting, involving, engaging, and, and laugh-filled as it was in its prime in 1976. <laughs> hey, I mean, honestly, Happy Days is still one that is very strong in my memory. We actually were talking about on another episode where we went over some of the different things from Nick at Night, which when it mm-hmm. moved to Nick at Night, that's really where I saw it. And I love Happy Days. Um, that I still find myself always uh, singing the the theme song for sure. And that's, that's definitely one thing. Uh, Plus we just got to meet Henry Winkler. Yeah. We um, (laughs) just got to meet Mr. Winkler. uh, Oh really? Yeah. He was, he was in Orlando for a convention. Yes. He loves doing those. Yeah. Super. He does love meeting the people. Oh, nice. Yeah. He is. Now actually with happy days, this kind of goes into um, another question. What, you, like I said, you're a triple threat, the writing, producing, directing, and you did every, all of that with Happy Days. Um, well, no, no, I was a, a, I started as a writer and, mm-hmm. and you know, became uh, the showrunner, which is a writer producer job. Yeah. I did not direct until mm-hmm. we were doing, then it was called Still the Beaver on the Disney okay. Channel, my long running uh, Leave it to Beaver revival. And okay. like I said, I could hire myself. To be yeah. So which which of those three do you feel you had the most creative ability to really decide the final decision? Was it, was it with writing? writing? Uh, you know, you, you never have, no one, save <laughs> a few people in the world has final decision. Okay. But I have enjoyed tremendous, tremendous uh, creative freedom, no matter who I've been mm. working with. And that goes hand in hand in working with people who share your views, values, and expectations. You know, if, if someone thinks they, they have a completely different project in their head, you know, uh, nothing you do will ever please them. <laughs> My experience in dealing with people like Gary Marshall, Ivan Reitman, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, that these are people who who respect people's visions and want to help them to do anything they can to accomplish them and give you hints and, and, and pats on the back and, and, and tell you where you might improve. Uh, and so that's the kind of, I, I would say, you know, you're dealing, you're talking about authority and I'm talking about collaboration. And uh, yes, I've had some dust-ups with the net. When I was at Mark and Mindy, when I was at Mark and Mindy, uh, the network had it out for, for the show. And there were people who were trying to, I, I always describe those people who walk around with the cans of gasoline starting fire, and then they throw a bucket on the fire and they say, I put out the fire. <laughs> uh, and there, were, there was a lot of folks like, like that uh, at ABC. And, and, and I always remember, I, this guy said, this isn't the way this episode should be uh, should be done. The, the way this episode should be done and he goes on and on and he finishes and I go you know that's exactly the way we wanted to do it but you wouldn't let us 
<laughs> and, 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 and Gary Marshall, uh, when we left the building, oh, I really like the way you took him down. <laughs> You know, like a proud father, you know, yeah. uh, you cut the legs out from under the network. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a man now. <laughs> I love that. Now, let's kind of, let's transition. I know uh, we do have you for a limited time and everything, but I definitely. watch out in Kansas saying, let's transition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what well, definitely want to get some time to talk about your book. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yes. So going hand in hand with this half century career I've yeah. had and my affection for the things that inspired me, the things I worked on all over these times, I've been a tremendous collector of toys and pop culture memorabilia. And you know, I have thousands and thousands of pieces. And there came a point where where you kind of said, the collecting's kind of done. I, my joke is I don't have room for another olive oil, and it's kind of true. <laughs> uh, and my career is really at a sunset time as well. And it was time to take stock of both and the effect that they've had on each other mm-hmm. and, and how one has influenced the other. And so it took 11 years uh, for me and my brother-in-law is one of the top tabletop photographers in the country, Joe Pellegrini. Uh, for instance, every Subway sandwich you've seen in a magazine, in store, on a billboard, uh, uh, behind the counter in pictures, he's taken for the last 16 years. He shoots sweaty coat. So I turned him loose on my coat. He's in Chicago. So every time I go home, I take a box and we, a big box, and we spend a day cleaning, shooting, <laughs> wrapping, <laughs> shipping it back. Uh, and this went on for 11 years. And we created a supersized coffee table book. Uh, it, it's it, it's huge, literally. Uh, it's almost a foot tall and wide and 480 pages with over 1100 original color, beautiful color photographs uh, that reflect uh, those, those kid shows that I grew up on. Uh, Beaver, Happy Days. Happy Days, you wouldn't think. Happy Days had over 20,000 licensed products. Bicycles, shampoo, uh, (laughs) action figures, games, dolls. uh, You you have no idea. And especially uh, the Flintstones, which we haven't really talked about. But after Beethoven, uh, I had no idea what I was supposed to do. All of a sudden, I was a movie director when I'd spent Mm -hmm. almost the past 20 years in TV and not as a director (laughs) primarily. Uh, so I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and I and and I, I heard they wanted a script for the Flintstones, and I said, "Get me in there." And they said, "Ah, oh, that job's gone," but they'll meet with you as a director, and I couldn't believe it. And I, I had a meeting with, with Spielberg and Kathy Kennedy, who now runs the Star Wars Empire, uh, over lunch while they were shooting uh, uh, some stuff on, for Jurassic Park on the back lot. And uh, after I stopped stammering, after about ten minutes. <laughs> I, I, I showed him a, a Polaroid, that's how long ago this was, of my Flintstones collection, which was then about 30, 40 pieces. And behind the, the little sunglasses, I saw the eyes light up. And and I think he he's very intuitive. And he said, here's somebody who the Flintstones isn't just the vitamins his kids take. <laughs> <laughs> he knew that I had done Beaver, which his office was actually <laughs> exactly where the Cleaver's house was before they moved the whole street, Colonial Street at Universal, to make room for his office. 
Uh, and he's, you know, and he had a similar background as a kid who made films, you know, and, and, and you know, and we talked about that kind of stuff. So then I had, what, 30, 40 very, you know, nor, nominal Flintstones pieces. And today, I don't know, a couple thousand. Uh, <laughs> and there's 60 pages of them out of the 480 pages in the book, including the beautiful maquettes, uh, the, the statues of the character designs that were made by the Jim Henson Creature Shop uh, in London, uh, which is no longer active. Too bad, the most creative place I, I'd ever been in in my life. And, and the work they did for the Flintstones is just magnificent. You wouldn't make the Flintstones the same. We built bedrock. We built we built the town in a quarry. We built the, 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 the neighborhood in the overflow parking lot of a state park in, in, outside Los Angeles where the Teutonic plates that you know the things that cause earthquakes and pushed up through the earth and these huge dramatic uh, vestiges of rock forming the background. You know, today they would make doors and floors. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's about everything would be CGI'd. And so we we there's only fifty three CGI shots in the Flintstones, wow. and the rest of it is puppets. And, and you know, if you see Dino uh, up close, he's a puppet operated mm -hmm. with the Henson control, the uh, motion control system, which is an incredible way to take puppeteering into, in, into another century. And, and unfortunately, it's kind of outmoded today, very little used. Uh, but they're, 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 the skills of these people is just <laughs> off the charts, off the charts. So anyway, if you saw him up close, he's a puppet. And if you see him wide chat running through the dog door or something, he's CGI'd. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but they're both made from the same models. And, and you know, the Flintstones in its day was one of the uh, set the Memorial Day record for uh, uh, for box office gross in America. It, it, it grossed one of the top grossing comedies of all time at that time, three hundred and forty seven million. And once again, there, you know, China wasn't open. Russia wasn't. Open. Well, now it isn't open again. But uh you, there are so many parts of the world that were not even served, and the Flintstones succeeded even in places tremendously in, in the Spanish-speaking world where it had always been strong, and, and, and in Europe. But Japan, they never even had the series, and it did very well. People, people dug it uh, uh, who didn't know it. So you know, and, and I think that's probably like a little over a billion dollars in today's money, which is Marvel money in in a way. But uh, the the sequel, John Goodman, I think people said yabba dabba do to him too much in airports and he <laughs> didn't want to put the dress back on. <laughs> uh, so so we pivoted and we did the sequel, which was a lot of fun to make with very, very, very talented people. Uh, but it just never found the same favor with the audience. Spielberg, uh, the first time he saw it, he turns around and he says, I think you made a better movie. <laughs> Audiences disagreed. <laughs> <laughs> I personally enjoyed both of them. So <laughs> I, I'm, I was scared at the premiere when one of the writers walks up to me and says, all those talky scenes, what were we thinking of? <laughs> oh, man. So kind of just going um, back with the book. and the Please, let's talk book. I which is a, from, from publisher G Editions, available wherever books are sold, and with a new low price on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> which I, looking over, reading everything, 
was so, so much insight Mm -hmm. on different things. Like you were talking about how happy days, there's so many different pieces uh, of toys that were out. What, what do you think the process was? Because happy days wasn't necessarily a child geared show, but yet it was a a family show. You know, I always used to say that the, I was never happier at the movies than I was watching my my kids when they were young totally be absorbed and, and, and you know, literally paste themselves into Oz, <laughs> you know, that the, the experience was was so dynamic and to share that with your kids. And once again, we, we talked about uh, how we've kind of lost uh, family viewing. But in those days, it really was there was something for everybody. You know, your 13-year-old sister could drool over Scott Bayo. The eight-year-old <laughs> could, could, could like Fonzie, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting people down without throwing a punch. And, and mom and dad like Howard and Marion and that nice Cunningham boy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it lent itself to action figures. It lent itself to, to games. It lent itself to, they didn't make bubble bath, but... <laughs> But they made bicycles and pinball machines and, and you know, you know, so so many crazy combs and n- necklaces and you know, um, you know, the world of merchandising is, is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I I really like multiples of, of of things, not not of the same thing. But for instance, you know, up until maybe like 1980, style guides, meaning you know, like if you buy a Simpsons toy today, no matter who makes it, it's going to look the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the artwork is standardized. You sign the contract. You you use their models. Prior to that, and especially when the majority of toys were made overseas, uh, Japan, Korea, and, and later China, they didn't have style guides. It was really more like fan art. It was more interpretive. Oh, wow. So some of uh, someone who was making uh, the 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 bedrock band with red flintstone banging drums you know with the, the symbols are tortoise shells and their skins literally you know uh his the way he makes fred flintstone is going to be totally different from the person who makes uh, the dolls uh it, it, you know it's just their interpretation of the characters and remember this that uh for the first three or four years of the flintstones it was made in black and white so their reference wasn't even in color so you often see you know orange dino and and, and fred with green hair <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 you know, no difference between Betty and Wilma. They just couldn't tell them about <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're women. All right. <laughs> so with that, um, you're, you were talking about how your toy collecting, like with collecting it, you did have influences. Did that really also truly influence your projects with exception of Flintstones? We talk about Flintstones, how? Yeah, well, jingle all the way. How, yeah. what, so so I, I pick up, a, they send me the script and, and they said, this is going. They got Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I opened the script and, and, it's, and it's the Turbo Man figure being manufactured. And I said, oh my God, I'm, this is a, a movie about toy. I'm going to have a whole show. <laughs> Of Turbo Man toys, and indeed, I, I, I can't even show you. Oh, yeah, it's up here. Oh, yeah, you can see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, so, so I was immediately attracted to it. You know, and so what was important to me? Designing a toy line, right? <laughs> Designing the hottest toy line in America, and and we we're so confident in the film, right? And we we're so confident, and it really designing a superhero, a unique superhero. 
is very difficult. It's like, God knows how many iterations we went uh, uh, of the costume, you know, just finding colors that hadn't been used. You, you know, you do red and blue, it looks like Superman. So he finally did it. And then the, after it's all done, I looked at it and said, geez, it looks a lot like Iron Man, doesn't it? <laughs> Which we could have switched around. But in, in any case, it, it was it was great to design the toy line. And, and the movie was tremendously challenging and difficult. Once again, one of those things where they have a release date before a script. <laughs> and so we had like 12 weeks of post-production. Normally on a movie like that, you get 30, 32 weeks. Uh, we, we didn't have that. So the, the, the visual effects were very rushed. And, and in those days, you actually had to time the, 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 the VFX shots, the CGI shots, before, before they could finalize it. So you had to project. The, the, the director of photography had to figure out what the shot before and after would have to look like to make this one a certain way. And, uh, uh, you know, all these little tiny awful problems uh, uh, that, that, that weigh on, on the post-production. In any case, we thought we were going to have the number, the, the number one movie, the hottest selling toy in America. And of course, the movie bombed, <laughs> came in fourth, the first one, went up the second week. Uh, and, and and but only did 61 million domestically, another 61 million overseas, which was a, a real disappointment for an Arnold film. In fact, like three years later, I got a letter from Fox saying we're not going to send uh, accounting statements because there's no way this movie's ever making money. I might I might check that out. It's been, it's been a little more successful. So here we are, 25 years later, and Funko re-releases the Turbo Man figure that, that Tiger Toys had made from our design. And it finally becomes the hottest toy in America. And uh -huh. Funko has a, 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 a whole line of Funko Pops. Mm -hmm. And people are, are, are doing tremendous fan art. People are, people, people are flocking to 25th anniversary screenings of it. People constantly tell me how it's a viewing tradition in their house. And this has been going on. For, I first got wind of it, you know, when people would, I, I spent a lot of time on campus. I teach, and I just finished teaching at the University of New Mexico, my alma mater for six years, and I'm still teaching at the University of Arizona, where I also attended uh, for, for a couple months a year. But but uh, I, people started bringing me these, these worn out VHS covers to sign. Oh. And, and they say, we watch it every year at our house. And I go, really? <laughs> Does you have anything better to do? <laughs> <laughs> it it's one that I I honestly enjoyed it. Uh, my brothers, I have two older brothers, and so they were big Schwarzenegger fans and the toys and everything. And we always we did growing up watch it every year uh, on TV. We'd we'd sit around and uh, go through our TV guide and see <laughs> when it was going to be on that week. No, and it, it, it's incredible for a movie that went nowhere, went nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, it, and to whoever expected that there would be marathons <laughs> of it uh, on TV and, and, and Christmas Eve screenings uh, on major networks and stuff. Uh, it's so surprising. But and now you look at the competition, 101 Dalmatians and, and uh, Space Jam. Mm -hmm. And there, nobody's having 25th anniversary screenings for them last year, you know. So, so it is endured, I guess. And I, you know, so people say, "Well, 
it, it's a cult classic. I said, I think it's a little more than a cult. Now it's just a holiday classic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but cla classic and jingle all the way are two words I never expected to hear in the same sentence. So it's been very redemptive. But it still doesn't. <laughs> it still doesn't displace the pain and negative effect it it, it had on my on my uh, film career. You know, it, it's like we we said earlier. You know, you get the couple. You get the couple up early. You get the right to fail. You fail big. Well, you probably forfeited some of that. Some of that. Uh, some of those rights. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that you put everything in a book form to share with everyone because I you had mentioned in there that the toys that you've collected are not ones that you necessarily have like preserved in a box. You love the toys that have been loved and you know they've been taken out and they were actually toys that people, you know, sort of play with or whatever. And I, I really liked that aspect of it. Well, they're also cheaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it makes for a wider collection. No, no, but, uh, you know, I, I like something in nice condition, but I also love it if it's in terrible condition, if it really was loved. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, or, or, you know, I have a, I have a uh, Amigo Superman, and they used to come with the, the, the Superman emblem was a decal <laughs> that you put on, on, on the cloth of, of, of his shirt. And so I have one and the kid was stupid. He was holding the thing upside down. And so when you turn it right side up, the Superman logo is upside down. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but he didn't throw it out. He kept it. Yeah. <laughs> gosh absolutely and i i just wanted to share with you i have my oh that's from beethoven too yeah i have her that, still that's so. missy yeah <laughs> i had nothing to do I with it. I, I, they wanted me to do beethoven too and that was at the same time as the flintstones and uh <laughs> so i had to very painfully extricate myself from that oh. uh because those people were so wonderful to me and then you then you said oh, sorry spielberg is calling yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even though their buildings were like you know like you could hit from one to the other with a tennis ball uh, <laughs> yeah they built even a nice building too at universal <laughs> now for your collection what do you have a preferred method of acquiring new toys by by all means <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time on on, on eBay. Uh, like I said, I, I haven't really been buying. I guess I did buy something yesterday, but <laughs> uh, but it, it's becoming rare and, and rare. You know, it used to be, antique shows used to be so great, the big toy shows, and they really aren't there. And eBay, in a lot of ways, is like shooting buffalo. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it, things that you you sought, you hunted. Mm -hmm. For years, and uh, it took it took it took me, I think, twenty four years to find a uh, Leave It to Beaver magic slate, which is a cheap thing that a nineteen cent toy uh, where you uh, crayon surface covered with a very thin plastic sheet, and if you press down on it, you could make a line, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I always say the magic in magic slates was that your parents would buy you another one after you destroyed the, the one before <laughs> in about 20 seconds, which they're very fragile. Anyways, it took me all those years to find a, a, a Leave it to Beaver magic slate. And I did finally find it on, on eBay. But, you know, the, the hunt is kind of gone. And that, that was fun. That was fun. And, you know, it's, now you can find unexpected things mm -hmm. uh, now and then. But, but uh you don't like see a picture of something or 
see something once when it's way out of your price range and, and it'll take you decades to ever see another one. That's kind of gone. Yeah. <laughs> so I do also have to ask, do you still have that light bulb from the gumball machine that you talked about? I do. About? You do? <laughs> I do. So what they're referring to, this is, this is you know, the, the Rosetta Stone uh, 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 of my collecting was being like six, seven years old and wanting a little tiny glow-in-the-dark light bulb charm uh, uh, that actually glowed in the dark that was in a gumball machine. And, uh, and I had to have it. And it took me a long time to actually get one. And I, and I have it and, and a spare now. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is, it is the uh, the rosebud uh, uh, of my collecting for, for you Citizen Kane fans, which I'm sure there's fewer of today. Oh, man. I love that so much. Let's see here. I mean, we've kind of touched everything. Yeah, for... we don't want to take up too much more of your time. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. No, uh, this is great. Uh, uh, I hope I hope. You've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing so many stories and sharing your book with us. Yes. It's been a true honor. I, I've loved it. I, I apologize. It took me an extra little bit of time to get the questions over to you, but I wanted That's to. That's all right. That's all right. I just like to see, you, uh, you know, so I know yeah. where we're going. I like to be prepared, right? This Absolutely. is part of, part of being a director is you prepare, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Again, thank, thank you for yeah, your thank career. You so much. Yeah. Also, like, Again, like we said earlier, you have been a part of some very influential entertainment movies and shows to us mm -hmm. and our families. Um, it's it's an honor to be able to sit down and talk. Oh, well, you know, and, and tell your brother who broke broke uh, your thumb, he's on my shit list, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Although I did get, he did get you snow dogs. Well, he he's okay. Snow dogs, he's okay. So you I... don't have to just, <laughs> just disinvite him from the next jingle screening. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much, Brian. We've absolutely loved this. And for all those listening, be sure to check out his book. Again, it's on Amazon. We will My Life and Toys. Yes, we will link it into our show notes so that way um, people can just click and see it immediately. Great. But it's available everywhere. Walmart has it. You can order it. Bookshop. Wherever books are sold. Wherever books wherever are sold. Wherever books are sold. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so you got a guy in the, you know, hey, want to buy a book? <laughs> Absolutely. Again, thank you so much. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Good talking to you. We really appreciate uh, it. Adios. Take See care. I'm, I'm disassociating. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>